Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Today, we're going to be talking about coaching philosophies, whether it's between me or Alex. How do we train our athletes? How do I, as a uh, sports med professional, treat my athletes? And how do we coach in general? What What is our goals and what should you guys be looking at to try to elevate your coaching status? So Alex, if you could give me your coaching philosophy in like an elevator pitch, like a business class, what would you say it is? Well, I think our number one goal as strength and conditioning coaches, performance enhancement, right? I think yep. as we go into any type of our training routines and things, we have to Take into account the athletes that are in front of us. How are we going to enhance their performance and what's the best approach or methodology and principles to accomplish that goal? So leading the charge performance enhancement. Um, and then again, nothing new. Our, our secondary goal here is injury prevention. Okay. So injury prevention would be our secondary goal. And I look at injury prevention more as a byproduct rather than a main um, outcome, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to create training effects and enhance performance first and foremost. And then the injury prevention comes from just correct training in general. You know, if we're moving right, if we're selecting the right exercises and we're cueing and moving biomechanically correctly, then we're reinforcing joint structures. And by default, athletes going to have a higher tolerance to any type of capacity or movement. So main goal, um, performance enhancement, secondary goal, injury prevention, or reducing the risk of injury, however you want to state that. And I guess thirdly would be some type of atmosphere and environment. I'm a big believer in the weight room. There needs to be a certain demeanor, a certain um, feel, if you will. It shouldn't just be walking in and it's like a casual, you know, coffee shop vibes or whatever. There's an intensity of the room. And whether that's you bringing that as the coach, whether that's the athlete dictating the environment, either or works as long as the a beneficial and productive and somewhat intense atmosphere is present. So uh, in a nutshell, that's kind of my three big rocks. And then we can expand into any type of methodologies, principle kind of avenue that you want to go, Austin. Do you have anything to go off of that? Yeah. Well, I I like what you're saying about injury prevention being secondary. Mm -hmm. I feel as though... We're kind of, you know, it's always a pendulum, right? We've talked about this on the podcast before, and I feel like the pendulum right now has swung a little bit more towards the injury prevention side. Mm -hmm. And as, as somebody that's in sports med, I appreciate it, but the number one goal of performance training is to increase performance, or at least I think it should be right. If you're focusing solely on injury prevention, then you're probably leaving something on the table. If you're not letting them get outside of their comfort zone and remember that high performance isn't always healthy, sometimes you have to do things that aren't necessarily healthy to get to the top of the top of the mountain. Well, then you're, you're probably doing a disservice to your athlete. So that's where I typically argue with my sports sports med uh, colleagues, where if we're doing performance training, you have to put on a different hat. (laughs) If you're trying to do what I do and you're trying to be a healthcare and strength conditioning, you have to put on a different hat when you're doing performance training. You should look through a lens of proper biomechanics, but at the end of the day, they're there to get better. They're not just there to get hurt less. And that's, that's something that I agree with you that the number one goal in my coaching philosophy personally is trying to make that athlete better. 
That's why they come to see you. That's why they come to train. They're not there to not get hurt. That's a secondary byproduct. Like you said, they're there to try to increase their overall metrics and they're trying to increase their athleticism. Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's a couple of signposts or guidance um, quotes that I use kind of to infer direction out of this. Um, I mean, and number one, obviously you have the, the standard of care. You do, do no harm, right? Like we're, sure. I'm not trying to throw crazy shit at my athletes. Like this is going to have performance. And even if you get hurt, like otherwise I'd have eccentric, um, overloaded eccentrics in every workout, right? Yeah. Cause we know they're, we know they're, uh, beneficial to performance, but we also know that are high injury risk. So, mm-hmm. um, do no harm is kind of a standard guidepost that boosts up my injury reduction kind of standpoint. But at the same time, correct training should, or um, proper training should be corrective in nature. Yep. So not only am I already working on the injury prevention side by executing my performance goals really well, I don't need to continue to overshadow that by preferring perform or like corrective exercise and things like that. And thirdly, that's not my lane. That's not my profession, right? I'm not a rehab professional. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physiotherapist. I'm not this or that. I'm a strength and conditioning coach, right? So as much as being healthy and not having any structural issues helps my athlete perform, that's not my main criteria or job. Right. 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 Like so I, I, think, I yeah. use, I use like sandbag cleans as a perfect example, right? Sure. If you're doing a, one of those like Atlas stone sandbag cleans and you're doing that from the ground, there is 0% chance. If you like, say I have 150 pound Atlas, the, one of the rogue fillable sandbags sure. and Lifting that off the ground, there is a 0% chance you can get it off the ground in the mm-hmm. initial pull phase without doing some sort of loaded lumbar flexion. Right. 0% chance, no matter how small, how big, whatever, you have to get it. Would that be an exercise I would use for somebody's rehab? Probably the fuck not. Right. Is that something that I'm definitely going to use for a fighter's performance training? 100% because what if they have to get into that position? They yep. should be robust. My whole philosophy around training is about thresholds. Yep. You're trying to lift an a- or, your, or elevate an athlete's thresholds to the point that they can withstand different stimuli. That's what I think about when I'm trying to essentially plan out a plan for my athletes is can I lift their thresholds, whether it be from an energy system standpoint, whether it be from a strength standpoint, whether it be from a power standpoint, can I elevate their thresholds high enough to where they can withstand at the highest level, the demands of their sport? Well, not only withstand the demands of their sport, but then exceed that. You know, I think that's the other side of your threshold coin is not only withstanding the demands of sport, but also like surpassing their own performance demands. So I look at like threshold as far as like, if we're going to talk about power, right? We want to develop power within our athletes. What does that mean? One, I want to develop enough power that they can perform. So that's your threshold, right? The the minimum standard demand is like, I need enough power to hit somebody in the face and to make it hurt, right? Like that's that's the threshold of the sport demand. But then, you know, let's say I have a 155er in front of me and it's like, I want enough power that I can be a KO 155er, not a, a um, pacing 155er, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, we need to increase the maximum performance threshold of their power to be able to knock somebody out or to have some uh, quickness with their hands or their legs or whatever they're, they're striking with. So, um, And that's that capacity versus power kind of dynamic. For sure. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, I feel like it's extremely important to increase the threshold of which they can take punches. 
the threshold with which they can develop rigidity spontaneously. And that's something that I feel like is overlooked in a lot of coaching philosophies around MMA fighters in particular is developing that spontaneous rigidity doing, whether it be a plyometric drill or doing like just anti-rotation work in general, or just fucking neck work, doing isometric loading of the neck and trying to get a strong neck. All of these things are different things that apply into my philosophy. And I know your philosophy as well of making a robust MMA fighter. Yeah. So, um, I mean, eccentric isometric action is irreplaceable when we get into, you know, combat sports, grappling and striking, um, essentially, but you keep bringing up this word robust. And I think that's a a critical word in, in my coaching philosophy and in, in yours, when we talk about being robust, that means what you said earlier, the athlete can handle anything that's thrown at them, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe not anything quote unquote, but you know, the demands of the sport, the demands of their training, because those are two very different things. Demands of the sport versus demands of the training. How many fighters do you know that need to build up a tolerance just to handle their training load? You know, not necessarily to perform in a 15 minute fight. I can get a lot of guys to a position where they can perform for a 15 minute fight. A lot of our injuries, a lot of our missteps in training is because we don't have adequate robustness to handle a training week Yeah, because training weeks are so grueling within the sport of the MMA. So Part of our training, at least for me in a GPP phase or in a, a physical preparation phase, I need to build up a tolerance to handle the training load, not even sure. the performance load, not even a 15 to 25 minute fight, but a, you know, 45, 50 hour training week. Well, it's something's crazy. I don't remember the exact stat, but the UFCPI and one of in it was either the first or the second one, uh, their books they made, it was something stupid, like 70 to 80% of the injuries from grappling are in training. They're not in fights. Right. Right. So it's exactly what you're saying is if you can lift up the threshold, if you can make them as robust as possible, give them as many movement strategies, which is another thing that's in my coaching philosophy, doing one type of like a think about like a squat, doing a squat every way you possibly can and making them robust through a squatting pattern is going to increase their robustness. And hopefully not always, you can't always get rid of injury, but hopefully limit that injury risk through whether it be grappling, striking, whatever it have you throughout their week to, or day-to-day week-to-week practices. Right. And I think the way that we can, I guess, popularize this or put this in kind of layman's things is like, this is the, like the principle of cross-training, right? Yeah. Like everybody wants to go try cross-training. I'm going to go run a marathon. I'm going to go do CrossFit. I'm going to go do this because it'll be cross-training. It'll be good for me as an athlete. Like to an extent, yes, cross-training just increases your movement vocabulary is awesome. It's talking about, it gives you the ability to move well in multiple different patterns forever. Um, so in strength and conditioning, that's why we have you doing things like, you know, single leg work. That's why we have the trap bar and their correct organization on the trap bar. That's why we have shuffling. Like these patterns are not strictly your sport, right? But they give you the movement skill to apply in a more efficient and more correct is a bad term in a more efficient and more, um, performance enhancing manner, I suppose, if we're looking at it that way, like I'm not just teaching you to brace in order to brace on a trap bar deadlift. I'm teaching you to brace so that you brace by default, or I'm teaching you to stabilize on one leg because when you throw a kick, you're automatically doing it, but we can automatically do it better. So the movement vocabulary piece and the cross training piece is inevitable in strength conditioning, but then we can enhance strength conditioning by targeting those specific effects. We can target, this is what the benefit we want from our cross training here. This is the benefit we want from that. So I think strength and conditioning has become just a huge cross training or targeted cross training 
essentially, if you want to look at it from that standpoint. For sure. And what's something as far as coaching philosophy goes that you think really has no place in strength and conditioning? Is there anything oh, in man. particular? Huh. Um, this might be personal bias, but uh, a whistle tucked in tight t-shirt <laughs> and hardo shades. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've, I've been that guy. I don't, I don't, I'm not hating, but I've been that guy for some football teams and such, but um, this imaginary juice strength and conditioning thing. Like I know I touched on a little bit of like the atmosphere and the training intensity that needs to happen in a session. And like, sure. I think it, it's fun and you can bring it as a strength coach like that in some capacities, but excuse me, any MMA fighter is going to know that that's fake. That's bullshit. Yeah. One of the biggest differentiators I use at my performance gym, which we have a lot of high-level football guys and we have a lot of high-level mixed martial artists, is the football guys are always, you know, flexing and flossing, um, trying to tell you how tough they are. Yeah. None of the MMA guys need to tell you how tough they are, <laughs> right? So, like, that's that's one thing that for MMA fighters specifically that you don't need to bring is just, like, volume and, quote-unquote, juice and, you know, overt um, training mindset, like they already got that. Any mm-hmm. MMA fighter worth their salt isn't going to get hyped up for every workout. They're kind of past that phase, right? Um, but what you de- do need to bring is some attention to detail and some intent. Um, intent is irreplaceable. And I mean, we've talked about it a million times, but the actual purpose of this training, I feel like that's kind of what is missing in the MMA paradigm that's yeah. present in, you know, football training, baseball training, whatever. Like, the athletes need the juice and need the motivation because they have the intent drilled in so well. They know they're trying to get better at this skill. They know they're trying to enhance this athletic quality. I feel like MMA training is still at a point where we're just, all right, head down and grind. We still need to just work hard. We still need to just work hard. It's like, no, we're, we're working hard at a specific adaptation. Here's our training intent. Now we don't need the juice because we, you know, this is your 30th training session of the week. So we don't necessarily need to get hyped and, and try and create that motivational atmosphere. But here's the motivation of what we're specifically working on, which is the power that results in a head kick from your rotational power drill. Yeah. Right. So I think uh, a lot of that stuff, we don't really need the juice in MMA strength and conditioning, but we need a little bit more of communication and the intent behind our training. For sure. I think the biggest flaw I see in a lot of training programs is, is focusing on like a high volume program for an athlete that already has such a high workload throughout the week. That's when injuries happen. That's when you don't want to talk about injury mitigation. One of the best ways that I can try to mitigate injuries in my athletes is actually having a talk with them about training load and workload throughout the week. It's yeah. not necessarily the exercises that I do, right? It is, but for the most part, it's changing their training load, training their workload in a way that's not going to put them into a constant state of overtraining and thus a weaker immune system, thus weaker tissues. They can't recover from the workouts with which they're doing. That's going to cause injury a lot more <laughs> than or that's going to cause those injuries a lot more than me trying to show them, Hey, this corrective is going to help you with this, right? Yeah. That's not necessarily injury prevention. Injury prevention is talking to them about trying to be smarter, not harder. Our MMA athletes, exactly what you were saying are already tough enough. I don't need to be the guy that's going to push them, try to push them into the wall, have them break through walls, puke after every workout. That's not my goal. That's not my job, right? My job is to make them stronger, faster, and better. That is my job. It's not to make yeah. them tougher. Well, and 
sorry, I'll add one caveat here quickly. Sorry to interrupt you, but um, sometimes in, in some contexts that needs to be your job, right? But more often than not, in MMA, it's not your job. Yeah, you're right. I guess in some context, like I mean, if I'm working with a younger athlete, like me personally, if I'm working with a younger athlete that maybe they're not getting that from other ways, but if they're a professional athlete, doesn't matter what the sport is. If yeah. they're a professional athlete, if they get to the NFL, they get to the MLB, if they're in the UFC, guess what? They're probably pretty mentally tough or they're extremely skilled. Well, I'm going to push back on you there because I know you like the Tim Grover relentless book so much. Like that's what he made his living on. Right. For sure. It's continually getting at least to not break yeah. mentally. That is so, and, that, and physically, but, but, and that's the difference between a good and a great model, right? I'm talking about global stuff, maybe one-on-one I might need to do those types of things. Right. But if I'm talking about the, the gross generalization of working with professional athletes, they're typically tough enough. Yeah. Right. So then why is that if if we're looking at different buckets as, as the analogy you likes to use, filling different bucklets and picking a low-hanging fruit? Yeah. It's not a low-hanging fruit. If they're mentally tough enough to get to the fucking NFL or to get into the UFC, then it's probably not my job as a strength coach who doesn't really have a background in full, in uh psychology to be the one that's trying to increase mental toughness or increase yeah. their their mental rigidity, if you will, using a similar analogy to what we use strength conditioning wise. Yeah. My job is to benefit their athletic skills and try to elevate them. So that's my biggest pet peeve is when I see somebody trying to trying to make their athletes puke every single fucking workout. Yeah. Like that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me because that's not my job. Yeah. My job isn't to be the guy that's going to make you puke after every workout. If it happens sometimes, cool, not a big deal. But that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to get better. Yeah, and I totally agree with you there on a physical output stance. I guess the. I guess what really bugs me about the dilemma that you're you're um, communicating is is like the the performance effects under the facade of mental toughness training, right? It's like yeah. you're coming here to get physically better, and in order to get physically better, we need to push you through these walls and into this dark place, right? Like, um, I mean, <laughs> it just reminds me of, of like Ron Swanson again for. <laughs> uh, a little insight into how my brain works, right? Is like you're just lying, right? And yeah. like, and there's nothing more than I hate uh, more than skim milk, which is water that lies about being milk. That's around Swan's quote for you. But like, you're just lying. Like, you're like, we're getting all these physical effects because I'm training you so hard mentally and doing all this shit to make you puke, right? Be honest with yourself. You're not training for any physical effects. Like, the no. best thing that no. you're possibly doing is in increasing like aerobic capacity or lactic capacity, like maybe, but as soon as you puke and as soon as you're like overdone in the workout, like a lot of those training effects are null and void anyway. So don't lie to yourself. Just be straight up. Today is going to be a grind. You're going to have to push through it. And you know, it's more about you deciding to go and making the, having a great mental approach than it is about getting any physical training effects. Right. Which today's the day to do something hard. Right. And if you're honest with yourself about that and you continue to communicate that, that's going to, the well is going to run dry pretty fucking quick. Yep. Right. If you're telling your athlete, today's a mental day, we need to push, we need to figure out how to be, how to get through some of these tough fucking spots that you know you're going to see in MMA. And then tomorrow is the same theme. And then the next day is the same theme. And then the next day is the same mm-hmm. theme. You know, then the illusion, the secret sauce is going to be gone. Right. right. So I think if we're more well, honest about that with ourselves in a strength and conditioning profession, then we're going to force ourselves to get better. 
Right. Well, and exactly what you said. Some athletes do need that, right? That's yeah. that's how Tim Grover made his money. Some right. athletes, like if you're working with a fucking Michael Jordan, maybe he just like maybe that's what he needs. And he has so much passion that his well doesn't run dry. Yeah. Right. If I was working with a a good example is I don't work with him, but I've I've been around him, Henry Cejudo. If I'm working with a Henry Cejudo, that dude's well is never going to run dry. He's a fucking competitor. He's one of the most mentally strong people I've ever met as far as an athlete standpoint. So you oh. could, you could, if you want to, if you want that extra 1% and you tell him point blank, Hey, this is just mental stuff. You're not going to get any physical benefits from this. This is just to, Hey, if you can go to this deep, deep place, you know, this other person isn't going to get that, get to that point. You can drown them. Right. And you talk about low-hanging fruit you talk about where you can get the most bang for your buck the michael jordans the henry cejudos the whoever you have if their physical is in check right mm-hmm. like if their um technical and tactical is in check like all of these goats are right yep. then what's the lowest hanging fruit what's the biggest impact that you can make is probably on the mental side exactly you know so it's like it's not only like this isn't reserved for the best of the best this is what is the genuine biggest impact that I can make as a strength coach or as a, a performance coach? And for those guys, maybe it is the mental game, you know, yep. where for many other athletes, it's not exclusively the mental game. Yes, the mental game needs a lot of work, but we also got to make these movement uh, concessions or we have to ha- yep. give this priority a lot of attention as well. Well, it's talking about a coaching philosophy, which is bringing it back full circle is you're trying to d- make the biggest effect on an athlete and the amount, the largest amount of athletes possible, right? That should be your Mm -hmm. coaching philosophy. It should apply to as many athletes as possible. And then you should tailor individually based off the athlete in front of you's needs. But the global approach should be to help everybody you're working with. If you're trying to work with and help the most amount of people possible, just training people and pushing them into the ground and making them puke isn't going to be it. That's going to be reserved for the 0.0001% at the end of the day that need that extra little push that they, they want to drown somebody in the late rounds. Maybe that's what they need. If you're going for the majority of people focusing on movement skills, focusing on trying to make them more robust, focusing on whether it be some, if you need some correctives or focusing on training load and giving, educating them on, Hey, you probably shouldn't be doing 38 practices this week. You're probably, that's why your knee hurts all the time and you're never going to get better. All of those are going to be a better bang for your buck, at least in in my brain, than trying to push them so hard that they puke or trying to push them so hard that they feel like they're worn down because that's that's not good training. That's just good mental toughness, I guess. Right. And and I think while, while I'm hearing you talk about this and kind of delineate the approach here is like one statement from my graduate degree and things that I kind of remember is. Like there's a very big difference between a coaching philosophy, which is like kind of your global overarching approach to coaching an athlete, to being a mentor, to, you know, prescribing, whatever. Um, That coaching philosophy lives, you know, with, but not mutually exclusive to your training philosophy, right? So we have these SNC methodologies, sets, reps, whatever, you know, we have our training philosophy, like how do we get the best out of our physical exercise prescription and programs, which lives with, but not inside of your coaching philosophy overall, right? Your coaching philosophy is like how you perform at your job, how you do what you do. 
and how you orchestrate the entire system where I feel like your training philosophy is more or less like your game plan, like your X's and O's. These are the exercises. This is the sets and reps. This is the intervals that I'm going to prescribe. I feel like that training philosophy too often gets muddled and way too interconnected with your coaching philosophy. Like I know a lot of X and O's guys where their training philosophy is their coaching philosophy, right? Which is their training philosophy is the only thing that matters. Right. And which (laughs) again, can get the job done, can get the job done, but to bulletproof it and to find that that next level or the extra gear, I feel as though you have to create a coaching philosophy, which is your approach and your demeanor and your, um, I guess for lack of a better term, your overarching game plan versus the technical philosophy, which is your training. Right. Well, and don't get me wrong. I feel like for some people having just a training philosophy is okay, but you got to know what you want to do with your coaching career. I feel like that's an overlooked point. If you want to be an X's and O's guys, if you want to be a, if we're talking like basketball terms, like a role player, like if you want to be the sixth man where you, you don't own the gym, you go, you show up and you just want to put the X's and O's in. That's totally fine to just having a training philosophy, just being good at your job is fucking okay. But if you, if you want to make a culture, if you want to build a program, if you want to expand, you also need a coaching, a real coaching philosophy, because that's how you connect with your athletes. That's the difference between the two. A training philosophy is for the people that can just go, they want a nine to five, go to work, not a big deal and check out. A coaching philosophy is for the person that wants to make an impact that you want to, you want to make a difference with the athletes in front of you, not just on a strength and conditioning standpoint, but on a life standpoint and overall benefit them in the best way possible. So I, I feel like I don't want to jump on my soapbox, but having just a training philosophy is okay if that's all you want to do. Right. But if you really want to make an impact with your athletes, you need a co- a real true coaching philosophy on how you manage athletes and how you try to propel them forward, not just on the X's and O's side, but also in the entire sense of their training paradigm. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, exactly. Like you said, there's such a discrepancy and like you're leaving so much money on the table. If you don't have a coaching approach or like a, a overall game plan of, you know, mental coaching of, of, uh, like game planning of interpersonal coaching of like all of these, again, philosophy is such a gray and muddy word that it's hard to nail it down. But if you don't have this general approach to developing the holistic person in front of you, yeah, right. That's the coaching part. That's the, the next level. That's what's going to make you go status in coaching. That's not um, just the ability to execute on a programming side of things. Like you're talking about having the technical stuff is a, a um, unnegotiable standpoint. Like you have yeah. to be able to write a program and be fucking good at your job. That like gets you, you need, to the dance. Right. But then what helps you stand out, what helps you take over, what helps you make it your world is that coaching approach and the demeanor that you bring to the table. The, the most impactful part of your coaching is your philosophy, is your coaching repertoire, right? Because yep. if we're talking about technical stuff, athletes can go a lot of places and get that, yeah. right? Yeah. They can go anywhere to get the, you know, here's your five by five program. It's going to make you stronger. Anybody can fucking do that. Mm-hmm. Not anybody can get the athlete mentally in a place where they're ready to perform and rattle off seven wins in the UFC in a row. Right. Not everybody can happen. make the athlete smile in front of them while they're working out, have put them in a relaxed state or put them into a, an elevated state or make them feel comfortable. 
That's what matters at the end of the day. And I feel like that's a full circle idea of coaching philosophy and trying to bring it back to that is you're not just there to program. You're not just there to run athletes through exercises. Mm -hmm. You're there to make them feel comfortable. You're there to make them better, both physically and mentally. And Mm -hmm. you're there to help change their life. If you're a good coach, you should be somebody that's looking to make an impact on them, not just in the training sense, but also in the life sense. Amen, dude. And that's that's something that I stole a while ago off of Mike Guadingo and his podcast, which is your athletes, no matter what, should feel better leaving the building than mm-hmm. when they walked in the building. Yep. You know, and a lot of times that's not going to be physical, right? If your athlete performed well at a grueling workout, physically, they're going to feel like shit. Yep. But if you've done your job as a coach and you've you know, acclimated them appropriately and sent the right messaging. They feel good about their work and they quote unquote, feel better leaving than when they walked in. Right. Like, you know, it you w- can, yeah, go ahead. Well, one, one of my goals and not one of my goals, something I do with every single workout and my athletes that I know a lot of my athletes listen to this podcast and they'll probably laugh when I say it is I always make it a point that I'm always going to fist bump you when you walk in, I'm going to fist bump you after a hard rep, after a hard set, whatever it may be, I'm going to give you a fist bump. I'm probably going to make a little joke or make you smile because I think that puts people in a better space to be effective. Right. Everything uh, I, I may just thinking about it right now, talking about philosophy, I'm actually like fine tune going through what I do, but sure. everything I do is to try to make that athlete feel more confident. Mm-hmm. I try to use as many positive prescriptions as possible from a, from a movement standpoint, try to not focus on the negatives, just focus on the positive. So instead of saying, Hey, don't move your knee this way, say, Hey, I want you, I want you in this position. Don't, don't try to correct like, Hey, your knees diving in. Don't do that. Say, hey, let's just push our knees to the outside a little bit more. Just that mm-hmm. change in the way that I say the words makes it a positive prescription, not a negative prescription, right? right? And trying to make that athlete more confident in every movement that they do, try it essentially in my brain is going to take away some of that resi- or that uh, resistance from jumping into the weight room that we know a lot of combat athletes have. Right, yeah, we've no, talked about it at length on this podcast. A hundred percent. Now you can't tell you how many athletes have said, well, I'm just bad at this or yeah, I'm just exactly. This or whatever. And that's like, that my biggest pet peeve is because that's probably just because they had a coach that told them they were bad at this. And 100%. that's not my fucking job. That is not no. my job at all to make them feel shitty about them jumping into something that should be a beneficial part of their training. Right. And especially as we talked about with Darren, like some of the mental benefits from strength and conditioning are way outweigh the, the, the um, physical benefits. So mm-hmm. In the correct manner, as we were talking, we were kind of shit talking the, the mental coach earlier. But um, yeah, man, I think that's part of the environment, part of the atmosphere that I allude to originally when I asked your question is like, there's an air of intensity, but like you enjoy the hard work, you enjoy the training atmosphere because MMA athletes train so hard. And I've gotten a lot of insight into this since I've started training with my guys and since I've started to, to become better friends with them is like, a lot of times, like MMA athletes are, are just trying to escape the the grueling, shitty nature of training, right? Like training for MMA is super fucking hard. So let's talk shit to each other. That's kind mm-hmm. of funny. That makes it a little bit easier. You know, let's, uh, you know, for lack of a better example, let's find places to hide, you know, yeah. like I'm grappling. I can sit on his back for, you know, a good 45 seconds before I actually need to try and threaten something, right? Like training for MMA is hard. So let's find ways to enjoy that training and make it more meaningful than just the physical output that it begets, right? Mm -hmm. So as a coach, how you do that is up to you, right? That's your coaching philosophy, whether you can talk the positivity mindset, you can talk the, 
discipline and the consistency consistency mindset, which is what I would kind of how I would describe a lot of my coaching. Um, or you can go for like the inspirational route. You can go for the the logical sense making route. It's just it that's where you can let your personality overflow into your coaching philosophy is like how you embrace the suck and enjoy the hard work, regardless of its negative feeling in the moment. Just don't be the fake hype guy. It's my biggest pet peeve. That's what I was just talking about. The fucking <laughs> juice man. The fucking juice man, which again, I know. And I'm a hypocrite because that literally is my role on one of my coaching staffs right now. But hype man. I understand that it's a role I'm playing. Not do you bring a boombox to practice? No, there's already one there. Oh fuck yeah, a legit boombox. Uh, it's a uh, it's a little like Bluetooth gator type of thing. But I I we do I'll that. See. I got the whistle, the tucked in shirt, the fucking oh yeah, I'm all there. You're like uh, what's uh you you remind me of the guy, the uncle from Napoleon Dynamite. Okay, oh, I can throw the football over that mountain over there. <laughs> If I can, I, I bring it, but you know, that's again, it's knowing my role in a performance team and uh, well, it's executing what I, it while it still has benefits. Yeah. It's what I talked about before. So if you know your role, if, if you are a technical, if you're, if you want to have just a training philosophy and not a coaching philosophy, and I'm not saying that's you, but in a performance team, sometimes you just are there to have a training philosophy. Mm-hmm. Like if you're working on an integrated setting, maybe that's your job is just to show yeah. up and do X's and O's. Cause there's other people that do the other stuff. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Got to know your job. Yep. But that is our coaching philosophy podcast. If you guys got any questions, comments, or concerns, if you want to talk shit to us about our coaching philosophies, <laughs> hit us up in the show notes. All of our information's in the show notes. Uh, Instagram and email would be the best way to get a hold of us. Uh, if you need any strength and conditioning and or low back programming, hit us up at buildingafighter.com. We have some pre-made programs. We have some custom programs and we have a low back course available for you guys. So hit those up at buildingafighter.com. This is Dr. Austin Sheen. This is Alex Friedman. Damn, that was delayed as fuck. And we are out. Out.